what did they say? Third time's a charm. More like 30. Let's see if you can get it right this time. Hey, it's Sachet, and this is The Conscious Creator Show. Through exclusive interviews with authors, actors, entrepreneurs, musicians, other podcasters, and all kinds of creators, we'll explore how to make a life through your art without selling your soul. The creative side of business and the business side of being a creator, if you will. We've got a host of amazing partners like Brain.fm and other amazing companies. So head on over to creators.show, that's C-R-E-A-T-O-R-S dot show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and more. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. We've got a super special episode for you today with my good friend, Sahil Lavingya, who's the CEO of Gumroad. What's interesting about Sahil is not only does he define himself as a founder and a CEO, but um, also as a designer, painter, and writer. And if you actually go to his website, it's really interesting just the way it's set up. Uh, so Sahil recently wrote a post on Medium, Medium on his reflections on what he considers his failure to build a billion-dollar company, and that really took the tech world by storm. For me, this episode is super special because we spend as much time discussing the creative side and the business side. And there's not that many people who can talk about how there's a focal point in paintings and and how it applies to how he designs products and also the WeWork S1 and and what's going on with that. It's funny, we also actually talk about how it's so different um, when you enter Chipotle and um, Panda Express, which I found fascinating. So we start off the episode by discussing what it means to be a creator and a designer and it's just so amazing how deeply Sahil thinks about products he designs. We talk about the impact of uh, Brett Victor's Inventing on Principle talk that had on him. And actually, after the interview, I had to go check that out because it's really good. His experience as a CEO, raising money, being at the height of popularity in Silicon Valley and wanting to be Bill Gates and then things not working out quite like he expected. At one point, Sahil actually left San Francisco and moved to Provo, Utah, which for me was very fascinating in terms of his experience going from one bubble to another. And I kind of had a similar experience moving from San Francisco to Miami. Another thing we discuss is the difference between wanting to build a billion dollar business versus what people in at least tech consider a lifestyle business. And we close this out by talking about what's next for Gumroad. And on a personal level, how he's trying to figure out what type of creator he wants to be. One of my, again, favorite themes from this is about, and quotes from him is, I'm a multifaceted person and Gumroad is just one of the things that I do, but it's not the thing that necessarily defines me. Because as creators, we we can make that mistake of really defining ourselves by what we create and getting our identity wrapped up in, in what we create. So as you're listening, One thing to think about would be how do you really separate what you're creating from who you are? Because sometimes what happens is if what we're creating fails, we end up thinking that we're failures. And Sile certainly talks about that. So hope you enjoy this episode. Um, Do let us know what you think. We'll have all of the links in the show notes as always. And enjoy this conversation. Sile, thanks for doing this. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you've had this incredible journey of wanting to build a billion dollar company. And I think at 
the lowest point firing 75% of your staff. And we'll come back to that. But what I actually want to start with is for you, what does it mean to be a creator? Yeah, I like the lead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think to be a creator, you know, that sort of word is new enough that people I think haven't really coalesced around like a static definition. But for me, it's someone that values the creative process and making stuff as sort of like an essential part of their identity and sort of something they do to find joy, fulfillment, you know, something that if they had more time or money, they would spend more time creating. And I, I use the word creating like pretty broadly, you know, art, painting, writing, business, a family unit, you know, like I, th- I think all of these things sort of count broadly as, as creation. Um, the way that I like to define it is something that manifests outside of your, yourself. So if some, if someone can point at something outside of you and say like, you know, that exists because of you, that's sort of a creative thing that, that a creative process led to that. And so therefore that person, you know, is, is a creator. So broadly, almost everybody in my opinion is kind of a creator. It's just how strongly people kind of identify with that as sort of like one of their core purposes in life. Mm-hmm. And, and how are you, I mean, I've seen obviously a lot of the stuff that you're doing with painting, but how are you creating nowadays? Yeah, right now, I mean, super specifically, I've just started learning Blender, which is free open source 3D software, similar to like Maya or 3ds Max, used for, you know, 3D feature and TV animation, all sorts of stuff like that, rendering, modeling, shading, etc., animation. Yeah, so I've just been learning 3D. I built like a tractor the other day in 3D, which is which was fun to learn how to do. I've been painting a lot. I've been learning form language, which is kind of like this new, interesting, I guess not new, new for me, sort of way of thinking about design and like why things sort of look the way they look. Like I'm a very sort of like minimalist product, you know, first, like, mm-hmm. like sort of form function first, I guess, form last kind of person. Like the stuff that I design for the web is like t- typically like pretty sort of simple and, and sort of opinionated, but really like not flashy, like not super visually dense or anything. Whereas, you know, if you're designing like a, tr- I don't know, a vehicle in Star Wars, it's kind of the opposite. Like the function is very simple. They're like this thing basically moves you from A to B. But the f- form of it like the the sort of the, the look and feel of this thing is incredibly important in, in this sort of design process so it's been really fun to kind of like totally invert on that really and sort of spend a lot of time thinking about i could totally design a spaceship in two seconds right it could just be a oval but like what that's not interesting that doesn't communicate anything about the world or the environment these people live in or the things that they care about and so how do I do that effectively? And it's hard. It's a really hard thing because it's stupid. Like it makes no sense why you would design. Like when you, when you sort of look into a lot of these projects, like it doesn't actually make a ton of sense why things look the way they do. But then you realize that like that's, you know, there's a reason that, that you know, the houses that we live in aren't all just like brown boxes. We like sort of putting our personality in mm-hmm. On, on things and our imprint and obviously there's fashion and there's architecture there's all these movements and schools of thought and things like that 
but I never really kind of like deeply analyzed it, which was really fun. This has been a really fun exercise. So the last like three or four months, I've been really focused on on foreign language. It's called interesting. And, and do you see like commonalities in that and like even like the stuff that you designed earlier, like create and data? Was there sort of like a common theme that ran through those? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a, a word in painting called style, right? Like you look at a Monet or a Van Gogh or whatever, like they all have sort of like a very distinct style. And it's one of those things that you can't really, it's hard to work towards a specific style. Like it's kind of just like in you in the way that you see the world and observe. And, and it, that will be reflected, I think, in the way that you paint. And it's similar with product, I think, right? Where like, you have a sort of way that you, I have a way of going about solving a problem that ends up being really consistent. You can kind of look at a lot of the things that I've worked on and, and, and kind of see like, Oh, you know, he always uses Helvetica and Georgia as like this sort of default answer, default serif fonts, or, you know, the way that I style things or whatever, or even the way that I sort of think about information architecture ends up becoming pretty similar. So I think there are a lot of similarities. I think the one thing that's been really helpful for me is like it, it, forces me to kind of spend time analyzing like my style and really figuring out like what it is and what, you know, like if someone wanted to design quote unquote design like me, how they could do it really effectively and really quickly. And yeah, one of the things that I think I learned is like, I really, I am sort of super minimalist. Like I really enjoy a really simple interface. Typically like every screen like has one big button and I have a sort of like, almost like a, yeah, like a very sort of Apple inspired, I think, design. You know, you can almost tell when you see a, a startup that was like launched from San Francisco versus launched in New York. Um, yep. Like Mark has a kind of like very flat, like black and white kind of fashion sort of forward look. And I, that's not me at all. Like mine is kind of a very kind of like minimalist, efficient, information dense, text heavy, typically design very typically too low contrast, too much text reliance, almost always like very grayscale. A a lot of, yeah, it's kind of like a very simple pattern. You know, my buttons are always kind of like four pixel rounded. I love rounded, rounded boxes and drop box shadows and things, things like that, that you can get. It's like, I don't even, I always just go to those. I'm like, those are, that's the way I design. Those are the answers. Mm -hmm. But then really spending time thinking about like, oh, these are the other ways, you know, people, you know, like a New York startup might have like a five or 10 pixel, like thick border in between like two different UI elements. Like I would personally never do that. That's just not my aesthetic. It's just kind of interesting to analyze. So yeah, there's definitely patterns. And a lot of my view is to kind of fit into what's already happening, you know? So if there's a sort of iOS seven comes out or whatever, and it's like super flat, I really like, fitting in to that aesthetic and not really trying to revamp it. And then I really enjoy like, yeah, it's sort of tactile references. Um, so like, for example, the buttons, all the toggles on Gumroad are like, you know, look like toggles. You click them and it kind of animates left and right instead of a checkbox. And so I like, I like our technology and our software feeling more real and more sort of like meaningful almost. Like every interaction feels like something's happening. Uh, I think that's why I love shadows and things like that is it just makes the UI feel more real and more tactile. Whereas, you know, someone in sort of that New York kind of style is kind of, it's almost like an edit, like a magazine that they're reading. Like it's super flat. It's really graphic. 
lots of bold colors. And for me, it's like, well, you would never want that on your microwave. And that's kind of kind of a difference. Like I'm a more kind of like Braun Dieter Rams kind of person, I think. I don't know why, you know, I don't know why that is. I think we are, we're kind of like born with like certain taste mm-hmm. and what we like. But yeah, that's sort of the long-winded answer to your question, hopefully. <laughs> no, this is super interesting because I think, I don't think you've talked about that sort of like design sensibility. And even in the way you described it, I can tell you've thought about it a lot. Yeah. Were you like, I'm curious, like as a kid, were you always just doing that too? Just kind of like breaking down different designs or things around you to try and understand them? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's funny. Like I think nowadays because like Gumroad has kind of grown to a point that like people don't even realize sometimes that I'm a designer. <laughs> like that's like kind of my my thing still. And then when people realize that they're like, oh, this is why you paint and you do all these other things is because mm-hmm. the kind of visual kind of even writing I think has kind of like a design sensibility to it. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I remember like in the early days of my life, like even like fonts, you know, like really thinking about why certain fonts are used. And it kind of sounds... I remember being like, this is like kind of pretentious, you know, to be like, oh, why does Apple use these this font? And like, why does Microsoft use this other font? And why does this other... You know, this storefront use this and this mall use this? And But I think just really, as I started designing my own stuff, like there is a lot that that stuff kind of communicates. And I remember like telling... To, you know, telling friends like, oh, you know, this this font like you know is used because like impact, it's like really blocky and heavy. And so if you know if you're selling like cargo pants, mm-hmm. like you're probably gonna want a brand that's a little bit more blocky and dense and almost it kind of resembles like the kind of utilitarian feel. You know, the reason that like the military builds things that are, you know, sort of blocky is typically because blocky is cheap, right? Like when you it's easier to ship, it's easier to build, it's easier, you know, it doesn't look as sexy necessarily, right? It's not sleek and curved and nice, but it's efficient, it's cheap. And, and at the end of the day, if you want a tank, like you don't, you shouldn't really care about like how sexy it looks when it's running over some. But like just really thinking about that, yeah, has always been kind of a thing that I like to do, or even, you know, like the way that people think about, you know, houses and like there's the spaces. Like I, I think in that talk we were talking about before, Inventing on principle, there's a bit where he talks about designing spaces, or that might be another talk. But there's Wilson Miner actually has an amazing talk called "What We Build," I believe, which Mm -hmm. talks a lot about that. Like a lot about those are my two favorite talks: "Inventing on Principle" by Victor and Wilson Miner's "What We Build." But Wilson talks a lot about space designing. Basically, his his point is like we design things. Mm-hmm. And then those things design us. Like there's this kind of mutual relationship that goes on and on and on. So we design the car, the car designs our spaces, those spaces design how we work and live. And, and then those, you know, the way that we work and live design them, sort of influence the way that we want to build and what we want to build and, and these sorts of things. And he talks about a space, right? Like you walk into mm-hmm. a museum or any building and there's kind of like a, you should kind of instinctively know like what you should be doing. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience but like I walked into a Panda Express the other day, I will admit. And I live in LA now. <laughs> it's uh, too easy. And uh, I didn't know like which, where to go. Like there yeah, was it's like, like, what? Yeah. Yeah. There was, it was just kind of open and there was like the, you know, kind of like all the food, kind of the, whatever the, that display is. And then I couldn't tell really like 
there was no real line building up anywhere. So I, I was just really confused. I was kind of like stressed. Like, where did I go? I didn't even, you know, and then I sort of figured it out. I was like, okay, the cashiers are over here. So like not there. So the other side and I figured it out. But then I realized like when I had that experience, I was like, wow, I've never like, that must mean that like Chipotle's are like incredibly well designed because like I never had that thought. Like I know immediately and and then you can break it down, right? You can sort of say, okay, when I go into a a Chipotle, typically there's a menu on the side or like, there's like kind of, you know, like a story of Chipotle on the side or like whatever kind of like the step one is. And there's like a clear guard railing that kind of like starts right at the door. And so there are all these kind of implicit signals, right? That you use to kind of like instinctively know museums are really good at that because there's less sort of functional utility to what they're doing. There's just like, check out all this stuff. And so you have to kind of invent a path, but yeah, you just, it's just like really fascinating to notice basically that everything is designed, right? Everything is implemented in a specific way, hopefully for a reason or a variety of reasons. And I think, yeah, just thinking about thinking about those and then implying those into your mm-hmm. design is just really, yeah, it's just a really good thing to be able to do because inevitably, whatever you do, if, even if you don't consider yourself a designer or what have you, like you're still doing that. You're still designing like the entrance to your home, you know, and where you put your shoes and like all these sorts of things. And I think when you, when you do think about those things, and I, it, it basically takes just as much time not to think about those things as it does think about those things, right? Like you still have to go out and like design, like decide what you want to buy and where you put it. Like you're doing those decisions anyways. You might as well think about, I think like, you know, does it go on the left or the right, right? Like the door opens this way. So, you know, you might want to hide it or you might want to show it. Like, you you know, like these sorts of basic things. And the more you do it, the more instinct you get around it. Like you just Mm -hmm. automatically start doing certain things because your brain has like figured out like this is the right approach, and it's fun. Yeah, it's it's you forget too. I think you get uh, there's a there's something called like the teacher's curse or something. But basically, you get so good at something, like you're you can't explain it to right. a to a beginner anymore. It's you know it'd be like Steph Curry being like teaching you how to. Th- there is actually a master class, I believe, from Steph Curry, and I cannot imagine that it's helpful at all it's because like all of the stuff that he's doing is like. Mm-hmm. Like it's impossible. I feel like it would be impossible for him to vocalize like what's actually happening or like, it would be like Messi teaching you how to do a free kick or something. He'd right. Be like, because it's become like unconscious competence basically. It's a, yeah. It's like an incredibly high level of unconscious competence. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just like a ton of muscle memory, a ton of sort of central nervous system stuff happening. Like we probably don't even know. Right. Like mm-hmm. there's maybe even his gut bacteria is involved in the decision-making process. Like who knows? We just don't have enough data, I feel like, to study any of this stuff. And there's examples of these exceptional people. But, but yeah, I, th- I don't know. I think it's interesting to think about a lot of that stuff. Yeah, one thing I found useful for that is like doing something else, like going to a different discipline and seeing what are things that I'm doing that are maybe like the principles are the same between those. Yeah. So one of the things you've obviously like, and it's interesting actually that you say you're a designer first, or because um, even when you go on your website, when you hover up over the designer thing, everything else fades away. <laughs> and that's the only one that happens on. So it's almost yeah. like I'm a designer first. Yeah. How has that influenced like other stuff you've done, like being a CEO and, and all of this stuff? Yeah, a lot. And it's funny you bring up the website because 
yeah, my website, my full name.com is really designed. And it's really simple. It's like seven words or something like that. But the amount of sort of thought that I put into it is like, is like stupid. Like it was just like I, one night I was like, how many sort of metaphors and like subtlety mm-hmm. can I build into this thing? And like the designer is a great one. Like the fact that when you hover over a designer, it kind of, it goes all black and designer becomes white, which is kind of like a very, kind of like a sort of self, it's kind of meta. It's like, this is what designers do. We like to like be kind of like annoyingly bold and the sort of like deep, like bold Helvetica, like mm-hmm. with a period, you know, it's like very reminiscent of like a lot of the like graphic design posters that I feel like has so much informed, like basically all of design now, iOS and basically everything. And, you know, you basically do them with, with a lot of those sorts of things. But, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, it's, there, there are, I think two levels of every sort of lesson. There's like the very practical actionable thing. And then there's kind of just like the, I don't know, like the harder, the more abstract stuff for, so for example, with painting, like there, there's definitely like actionable stuff. Like for example, with painting, I've become much more cognizant of like things like lighting and color temperature and composition and value structure and value statements, different color schemes, sort of gamut masks, like all sorts of like very kind of nitty gritty, you know, things that you'd learn in like college, right? If you like, before you probably even pick up a paintbrush, to be honest, they'd probably try to do all these things, which in my opinion is kind of backwards. But, you know, they'll teach you about like, what, what is the meaning of an analogous color scheme or a split complementary? Like, why, why do we use those? And what do they sort of signal into our brains consciously and things like that? And that's very applicable, like directly, right? Because if you want like a fun, sunny interface, like you're probably going to pick like sort of warmer colors. Like even a blue can be, it's like kind of a warm, you know, blue or it's mm-hmm. you know, lighter. So it kind of resembles like more of like a, a sky that's sunny versus like, rain or something like that like there's all of these signals that we are so that's like very simple like i've sucked that color like that's why i mentioned like a lot of my a lot of my designs are like very grayscale with like one color pop and often like even gumroad and other things that i've built that i think are pretty solid on a color level typically i just go to colorlovers.com and i just like pick a palette that i like uh-huh. and i just use it. but now i can think more about like why are those things appealing to me and come up with come up with my own and typically, like that's because like they share like sort of common color th- themes, and but then they also don't share on a strategic level things like that. So that's the that's the sort of concrete one. But then ab- abstractly, I think it's like, for example, like in painting, like you want a single focal point, you mm-hmm. want, and that's really like it took me a long time, and I still think I'm understanding, still sort of trying to understand what that means in my own work, but. Before, like, I'd look at a painting and it'd be like, this is a painting. It looks great. And if you're like, where's the focal point? I'd be like, I don't know. It's like whole painting is, is great. And it took me a long time to, to realize that basically every really good painting has a single focal point. And it's really, it's like your eyes are like moving around like a, mm-hmm. like a fly or something that you can't, you, it's so difficult to like get to a point where you can kind of like, almost like blur your vision, like go kind of double cross and be like, that's the focal point. And then you can kind of feel it. Like when you, you can feel like, Oh, all of these other components of the image are kind of pushing you towards that point. 
And it's done well because you don't notice. It's mm-hmm. really easy to do it, you know, in a bad way, right? It's um, interesting how that relates to like what you said about oh, when you're designing pages, each one having one button. Exactly. And then even yeah. when you enter a space, you know what the focal point is where you enter the space. Yeah, exactly. Right. So for example, in web design, like the equivalent would be every page should basically have a single thing that you want people to do. That thing should be sort of like probably more contrasty, more saturated than everything else. Um, almost, you know, in, in, in sort of general rule. In, in web design, this is sort of not the same in painting always, but typically because we read left to right, sort of most often we want like the sort of like the next step is mostly on the right side of the screen. Mm-hmm. Paintings, you have a little bit of that too. Like there definitely is like a tendency to put, like to look at the right side. Like for example, when you walk into Disneyland, right? Like mm-hmm. the tendency for humans is to go right, not to go left, even though it's a sort of symmetrical design to the space. Uh, we just can't help but do that. And I believe that's like broadly true, not just because we read left to right, but mm-hmm. I think that probably, I think we have a higher tendency um, if we're sort of native English speakers. But yeah, there, that's, you know, and you'll see that in, in the stuff that I design and hopefully more of it now that I sort of realize this rule that there's like a single core action that I want people to take. So for example, on Gummer, there might be a product edit sort of mm-hmm. experience or, or page and there's basically should be one green button that's like, this is the most important action. And that action is like saving the product, saving all the changes that you've made. And, you know, there are other buttons, but they're all kind of gray and a little bit smaller. And yeah, it just kind of creates like a nice, like feeling to like, okay, I'm on this page. I know what I need to do. Mm-hmm. And typically people already know what they need to do. So it's just like being like, here it is, by the way. Right. Like, just like if I walk into a Panda Express, it's like, Basically, everyone agrees on like the goal. <laughs> yeah, I want to order food. Like, I want to look, maybe look at the food that's on offer, and maybe like the calories, the price, or whatever. But typically, like, I want to order. I want to order. I want to get food. I want to order my food and get it. And then it's like really understanding the goal, and then designing to every element to serve that goal. And then you can get deeper and deeper and be like. And typically, paintings is the same, right? You have a focal point, but typically you have a secondary focal point and sort of tertiary focal point and those things should sort of sort of help each other right mm-hmm. the secondary focal point often has like an element that points towards the mm-hmm. primary focal point and it's kind of similar like the the sort of secondary focal point on gumroad on the product edit screen um, is probably the preview of the product that you're editing and that's right next to right under the save changes button right so you can you can see your changes and you can hit save you know so there, there's all and you know and near very close to that is kind of like the the url for the product so if you want to share it you can do that really easily mm-hmm. and on the left is like kind of navigation and on the top there's like a high level navigation so there's that there's a sort of information uh, hierarchy and it's like really simple and it's like one of those things that when you explain it to someone you're like that's obvious but it, you know it's only obvious like after yeah you know eight years worth of iterations <laughs> exactly it's like you, you have to spend eight years learning it and then you see the simplicity of it um, exactly yeah it's like you know you ever eat at a fancy restaurant and they they give you like the most simple dish and you're like this it's just like mango with grape seed oil or something like that mm-hmm. it's like and then you take a bite and you're like this is the best thing i've ever had 
but it's, you know, it just takes that, that sort of probably, I don't know how many iterations and experiments, like all this sort of like complexity to get to that level where, you know, like the things that a lot of these restaurants are famous for are actually like incredibly simple concepts. They might be incredibly hard to execute too, right? Like even maybe the mangoes, I don't know, preserved in vinegar for like six years or something like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's a typically like, I think almost always the, the answers end up becoming incredibly simple, but it doesn't mean that you can just go straight to it. Yeah. So I'm curious, like as someone, let's say like there's a creative who's starting to make money and then they're thinking about starting a company or being a CEO and, and you've had that sort of the journey too. What is sort of the relationship between what you've learned from the design side to that? Like, is there sort of a symbiosis between being a CEO and designer and, and lessons that transfer? That's a good question. I mean, I think there there's so much overlap in the way that I think about it that the, like it's almost hard for me to break them apart. Mm-hmm. I would say clarity is a huge one, right? Like the way that I kind of like to think about it is when I'm designing as a designer, like I'm typically sort of like designing for creators or their customers. And when I'm sort of CEO, I'm designing, but I'm just sort of designing for like my coworkers, uh, my employees, and like sort mm-hmm. of like a much, my investors potentially, right? Like a much closer group that typically has much more context on like Gumroad and what mm-hmm. we're doing. So the, so the sort of the solutions are often going to be quite different. But there's going to be a, yeah, just kind of like a much more, it's, but it's also much more sort of dense interaction, right? Like these people are working, it's a bigger part of their life potentially. And, and typically the, the product that I'm producing is going to be like internal documentation or like a nice onboarding experience versus like, you know, just like a settings page or something like that. Actually, funny enough that you asked that, like I had this just idea recently and I just I brought it up to the team today about building like basically we we have a lot of contractors like a lot of people that just kind of freelance for us and everyone kind of uses their own time management and billing software and then we have our own you know sort of billing software that kind of deals with their invoices so i was thinking about building something that's just like unique to us that is like built for this use case where it does everyone can use it to do time management tracks everything and then it kind of goes directly with ideally we want to build a really tight integration so i can basically see like this is how much this feature cost us that's mm-hmm. the goal. The goal is like right now those things live very separate in very separate places. And so that is like a really interesting problem because I think it basically addresses what you're talking about together. Like I I not I'm designing something as a designer, but mm-hmm. I'm literally building it for the people that I'm managing and I'm the CEO mm-hmm. of the company. Like and so that overlap is like it's almost kind of like fully like the Venn diagram is almost like on top of each other. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty exciting. So we'll see if I ever if I get around to it. But yeah, it got me kind of excited about like, wow, I could, you know, typically when that happens, like I just know I can build like a really phenomenal product experience because it's like, the, it combines those two things that I do all the time anyways. That's fascinating. How do you, how do you decide between, and I think for like creators listening, right? Um, we, it's, it's really easy to go down rabbit holes of just mm-hmm. creating stuff to solve your prob- own problem. So how, yeah. how are you sort of, separating yourself as a designer who's like solving a problem as like the CEO who's running a company and kind of like deciding what to focus on? Yeah. I mean, I try to just figure out sort of time-wise, like how much time do I want to spend on these different components, right? And so for example, like as sort of CEO of the company making like high level kind of strategic decisions, 
I try to spend a day a week, like a, a, a work day a week, right? So it might not be like a single day, though that would be amazing. And I'm sort of, that's something I'm actually striving for, but I typically will spend four to eight hours a week on like CEO stuff. And that's sort of doing CEO things. Like I'm thinking about it probably much more than that. Um, and then I might be doing design like, you know, 10 hours, maybe like a work day, like eight to 10 hours, maybe 12 hours a week. I might be writing code, fixing a bug for four to eight hours a week, you know? So I, I try to basically split, split it up. Um, because I think it's, you're right. Like there are basically rabbit holes everywhere you go. Like everything you, you can go basically go forever on any one topic, right? Like I could be CEO for a hundred hours a week if I really sort of wanted to do a lot of research, investigate data analysis, like really figure out, talk to a lot of people, talk to a lot of customers, talk to a lot of founders, publish like a master pl- tenure master plan. Like I could really make that part of my identity and make that part of like the output of, of what I want to do and how I want to create. So yeah, creating a, a ceiling basically where I'm like, I'm, I'm allowing myself up to this amount of time so that I can, you know, do other things that I also think are valuable. And I'm definitely in that sort of stage of my life up until basically the end of the year where I'm like, I'm much more broad, I think in the way that I, I want to think and, and how I want to spend my time. Like I'm doing three, I'm painting, I'm writing, I'm writing nonfiction, I'm writing fiction, I'm writing Gumroad, I'm having these other ideas. And I'm kind of allowing myself, I think, a little bit more flexibility to do that. Whereas normally I'd be a little bit more, you know, like I'm writing 10 hours a week, I'm painting 20 hours a week, I'm running Gumroad 20 hours a week. That's it. Like that's the structure. That's just, and, and typically I'd even give myself like, you know, Tuesdays from four to, you know, from eight to 12 p.m. Uh, from eight to noon, I'm writing science fiction. You know, I really break it out. Because that was the only way I could I could really do it, and now now I'm okay, kind of like letting them bleed into each other a little bit more. But I, but typically I go through that kind of up and down, where you know it's kind of like a I assume kind of like an athlete, where like they kind of go broad and kind of work on everything, and then up you know getting close to a game or something, they're probably like more focused on you know a specific sort of a specific angle, you know based on whatever you know team they're you know, or whatever their team they're playing against or something. And so typically I do that with like the end of the years for me end up being like more sort of speculative and like sort of idea based and then, and more reactionary and more kind of yes man E mm-hmm. and then the, sort of the first like two, two to three quarters of the year are much more like implementing what I spent, mm-hmm. you know, a ton of time thinking about. And now it's just like, cool. I'm just writing. I'm just painting. I'm just, I'm just building. I'm just producing. I'm just coding. I'm just designing. I'm just building. I'm just growing. I'm just whatever, whatever those things are, but they're typically like less creative, mm-hmm. but more implementation of, of those creative ideas. Yeah. Sort of like how, um, Bill Gates takes his think week, right? Every quarter. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And everyone has like a different way to operate, you know, like some people are, and, and, and it's a life stage thing too, I think, right? Like mm-hmm. some, I feel like if I, if I told the, the Sahil of like 10 years ago, like you're going to think on a yearly basis, he would be like freaked out. <laughs> so so let's actually go to that because you moved to the Bay Area about what, 10, 12 years yeah, ago? Yeah, uh, I moved to the Bay Area in 2011, January 2011. And, and it's interesting Bill Gates came up because so, so when you moved there, like what was your ambition or what you wanted to do? 
I mean, I definitely wanted to, to, you know, be, be sort of an integral part of the tech industry, the startup industry, mm-hmm. work at a startup, do my own startup, raise money, work for a startup that raised money, be or as early as possible, like be really like in, in it, I think. And really, yeah, I think to basically be the next Bill Gates on like a long cycle, those were definitely kind of the ceilings of my aspirations were, were definitely up there, you know, run like a thousand person company you know, be incredibly wealthy, at least on paper. Like, I don't, mm-hmm. it's like, I, I don't think I'd ever spend that much money, nor do I think Bill does either. But yeah, definitely those aspirations were quite similar to kind of like the Bill Gates story or the, or even the, you know, the, the Mark Zuckerberg story, which was a little bit sort of more nascent, I guess, at that time. But, you know, at that point, uh, Facebook was probably already worth like dozens of billions of dollars. And where do you think it came from? Or, or why was that there? Yeah, I mean, I think... It's, it's complicated. You know, I think partly Bill Gates was like the American dream to a T. I think this was pre when I was in middle school and high school, you know, this is like before everyone hated him. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. at least. And, or like after everyone hated him, everyone started loving him again, kind of thing. And now I feel like people are kind of on the, on the, the hate train again. But yeah, it was kind of, I think it was just, he was like the guy. He was like the the person who was, you know, solving malaria. He built this like amazing company. He seemed to be like a really smart person. And there was this like, just just, like sort of this just generic sort of like American dream vibe of like, you can have this incredibly large impact from a laptop. You can build whatever you want. You don't have to ask anybody for permission, uh, sort of disruption first. And I think also like, I don't know. I I think I lacked a lot of confidence in myself at that time. And like my grades weren't good. I felt like I had some level of like intelligence, but it wasn't showing up (laughs) in the places that people sort of expected it to, I guess, you know, like I wasn't that kind of like Stanford headed to Stanford or Harvard kind of kid or whatever. And I think a big part of it, honestly, was like this idea that like I needed to prove myself as like a, like, no, I am a smart person. I am intelligent. Please pay attention to me. And, you know, here's an app I built that makes $10,000 a month, you know, to, so that you, you'll believe me, which is like a very sort of backwards way, almost like if I think most people would, would be like, really, that's the methodology or whatever that you, that you're, you know, approach that you're taking. But that's kind of just like the way I thought about it. And also, it's just, I love the idea of being in control. I think that's really important to me. And I think a lot of people have since told me that, like, you really want to be in control of your life and your dis- your time, your location. And it's, in our sort of current society, I think it's hard to get that much control without starting a company and without getting into technology, which is kind of funny because inevitably when you, when you start a company, raise money hire people like you're actually incredibly constrained in in your optionality mm-hmm. but i think the the dream was sold in that way right and so yeah i don't think it's a coincidence that like bill gates was the richest person on planet earth and that's the career path that i chose for myself like i think and I, even though i don't i really don't care about money and i actually have like this incredible because i grew up in like a culture that worshiped money i really mm-hmm. like don't like it like i don't enjoy spending a lot of money it grosses me out but it kind of the ideals behind that, I think, really spoke to me. Is it also like about like what it signals to people? Yeah, totally. I mean, 
unfortunately, like we live in a world that like, it's, let's say I'm on stage with like three other founders. There's like this implicit hierarchy that happens, right? With like either like who raised the most money, who's worth the most, how, who has the most employees, who raised from the best investors. And these are typically not judgments on anybody's character or like moral compass or intelligence or anything. It's sort of more a statement on like the market they chose or whatever. But, but I think humans just can't help but do that. Like they can't help but just kind of, there's just so much, especially nowadays, there's so much data. There's so many people that you can talk to, that you can connect with, that you can read thoughts from that we just need signal. We just need filters. We just, and it's easier to just say, oh, I only care about people that are racist every day. And, you know, I, I kind of consider myself a hypocrite on that, right? Because I kind of espouse this, like, that shouldn't be the end-all be-all. But, like, I also did it. And so I'm sort of, mm-hmm. I get a lot of the clout of doing that, having done that. And now I can kind of disavow it a little bit. And so I, I understand I'm sort of, like, playing both sides, uh, you know, sort of speaking from both sides of my mouth or whatever. But I do think, yeah, I think it stems from, like, and, all, and just, like, a lot of, yeah, kind of, like, a lot of social status. Like, I... Derek Severus, he talks a lot about like, there's like a few things that motivate people, right? It's like mm-hmm. money, fame, influence, power, things like that. And for me, like money is definitely not up there. Like I just don't get motivated by that. But influence and fame, I think are much more sort of what I need to feel good for better or worse. And mm-hmm. just sort of like, it took me a long time, I think, to realize that like the billion dollar company was like, it sounded like a money goal because it's like, that's the face of that, the surface of it. But really there's like a deeper want there, which was like, I wanted to be respected. I wanted people to know who I was. I wanted Bill Gates to know who I was. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, and one way to do that, the way that I knew uh, was to build a billion dollar company. But then it's like, you know, it's like even why I'm not saying those are necessarily good. Like I'm not saying, Oh being motivated by money is bad, but being motivated by attention is great. But just being more aware of like kind of, there's like deeper levels to the things that we want. Yeah, definitely. My journey with last year has been figuring that out too, which was like, I moved to Silicon Valley wanting to do marketing and got all of these rejections. And then it became, okay, I have to get like people who are really well-respected and do marketing Mm -hmm. for them. Because if they say I can do marketing for them, then I'm good. Yeah. Andrew Warner, Tim, Seth, and at that at some point I looked at it and I'm like, when is this going to stop? Because for every level, there's a higher level. Exactly. No, you're correct, right? At some point, you're going to have to do book marketing for J.K. Rowling or something. <laughs> yeah, and then, then there's a higher level. Actually, there's a, I don't know if you've seen um, Kobe Bryant's documentary. There's, it's really interesting where he talks about how when he moved from Italy to back to the U.S., he used to, in high school, have to like eat lunch alone because he was a kid who spoke Italian and didn't have any friends. And then he actually talked about how his goal at the end became to sit at the same lunch table as his muses, Magic Johnson and, and Michael Jordan and feel like, to, like they belong. And I think this, this concept, I, I keep seeing this concept of just people wanting to feel like they belong in that club. Kind of like yeah. how you mentioned, like Bill Gates, knowing who you are, that just becomes a driver for a lot of what we do. Totally. I mean, at the end of the day, like you can, it is again, it's a rabbit hole, right? Like you can go forever on like why you do certain things. And the, the answer is probably 
there's probably no answer to it besides like maybe some like biological chemical reaction evolutionary thing going on right at least that's kind of my current take on it but yeah it's, it's definitely like there's a social component there that's really strong that we we really want to feel like you know like there's that sort of a what's that saying like if a tree falls in a forest but no one hears it did it actually fall and the answer is sort of philosophically no like the tree did not fall like someone would have to hear it for it to have fallen and i think it's a little bit like that like you can't be a good person you can't yeah really just be a good person i guess without people knowing that you're a good person and seeing it feeling uh, and acknowledging that and it's kind of a very yeah kind of like a very kind of selfish almost thing to be like i want to like kobe bryant like i want to pay play a hundred thousand hours worth of basketball so that like three people will respect me but at the end of the day, if that's what drives you, you know, that's what drives you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think like, it's great. Clarity around that is, is great. And people create incredible companies and, and things from that. So, so you had your journey of obviously like starting Gumroad and raising a lot of money. And, and so sort of like, what did the height of that look like for you personally? Yeah, it's it's funny because you can it's you can almost like Google trends my emotional state, which is a terrible thing to say, but you could see that kind of like you know raising money and like creating all this press and being in you know print magazines and being on the being on Forbes whatever bullshit list and all these sorts of things. But yeah, just feeling really validated by this industry that I still believe like the tech industry is like very can do a lot of great. Like definitely, I feel like. Has, the zeitgeist is not friendly to tech right now. You know, I believe tech, tech has a lot of power and to do a lot of really great things if used in the right way. And really feeling like, oh, the tech industry, like I'm a part of that, like I'm a mm-hmm. significant chunk of it. Feeling like, or at least like feeling like I was on the path to that, sort of becoming one of the kind of like people that, I, you know, like Kevin Rose or, or one of these people that I kind of considered a pillar of the industry, which is actually a really interesting example because I live in. I'm in Portland right now and Kevin lives somewhere around here. So he bounced, you know, right? It's like kind of this yeah. weird, I'm sure he had a similar, I, I'm sure we have a lot more in common to talk about now than when we, we had a chat like in 2013, which was all about like, you know, you just raise money, what's going on, what's the path, like both, on both sides, you know, he was doing right. his own thing and it would be really fascinating to talk to him now to, and sort of, I should actually do that. And it's interesting, right? Because like you were talking about a point and now it's about the journey because he also had the young founder and then Rose and, and all of that. Totally. Yeah. I mean, he was like, he was, he was my story on steroids, I guess people say, right? He, he just like was like the hottest star, was on the front page of whatever business week or whatever it was, worth 60 million bucks as like a 23-year-old or something. Mm-hmm. And then basically flamed out that at least on, uh, on the company level, kind of like mm-hmm. flamed out, tried, you know, tried a couple more times, didn't really work. He did end up making a bunch of money because he invested in, in a lot of really great companies, which is something I wish I had done when I was closer to a lot of these companies uh, earlier, if, you know, if they would have let me, but yeah, I think it's, it's definitely like, I'm sure we were kind of, we came to similar realizations, right. About like, it's kind of like, once you get into the club, you're kind of like, I'm not happy yet. What what's going on? Like I, I thought I would be here and it would everything would would be amazing, you know, and like life would be solved. I remember uh, in LA where I'm spending a lot of time right now. Is I was at this like dinner that a couple investors put together, 
and with like startup people and some some actors and stuff. And there was an, an actor there who's like sort of pretty famous tier, whatever, top tier actor. And I just remember thinking like, this person is like having dinner with me. Like, mm-hmm. why? Why would this person? Mm-hmm. I'm not that interesting of a person. You know, like this is, it was just like, is this what happens? Like you, this person like did it, you know, like becoming an actor, I assume is like almost impossible, right? Like at that level. Mm-hmm. He was a, one of the leads for New Girl. And uh, just like uh, on an insane level, like one in a hundred thousand chance or something. And th- like, this is what it leads to. Like nothing really magical, like nothing, you know, like, I don't know. Like, I, I, and that's, that's, I was talking to someone the other day about this. Like there's so many people think that there's like something on the other side of some door that they can't open yet. Like either it's like, you know, I don't know, like a, DMT trip or like raising money or living in San Francisco or working at Stripe or there are all these things that feel magical, right? That you're mm-hmm. like, Oh my gosh, I can't it's like the work that they do. It's so amazing. Like working on Spider-Verse or working at Tesla, whatever it is. And then you do it. And almost definitely the answer is like, Oh, it's just like what I was doing, but they, they just work harder or they're like slightly mm-hmm. smarter or like they have more knowledge to pull from or whatever, you know, it's like a lot of duct tape everywhere. <laughs> like people are humans, right? Humans are humans. We all hit snooze. Like we're all kind of figuring it out. And like Bill Gates is like just a dude, just like me, like just a normal person who, you know, kind of like the world put him in a place that very few people get to, but like, he's still just a human. He's just there. He's in a room right now probably staring at his phone or a laptop reading something like having a conference it's like we're doing the same thing like we're we're able to do basically the same thing and i think it's so important to really get to that point where to realize that, like there's probably not like a secret sort of cabal that you get invited to and life is amazing and you're just like a happier more joyous person because of it i really believe now that like the most essential things that make people really happy are accessible to everybody you know like i got a my fiance got a cat uh, and i'm like not a pet person never have been and it's like the best thing in the world like this flipping cat <laughs> and it just really made me i don't know like in this like very strange way i think just because it was such a shock how awesome a cat was gonna be like i just was like okay we'll have a cat like we'll you know whatever but then like even just like having a cat lay on your lap like it just like mm-hmm. makes you feel so good mm-hmm. and with no sort of side effects like you don't feel like good but then you're also thinking about this other thing um, because of it right like we're like a startup often does like whenever gumroad has a really great month i feel great for a second and then i feel sh- i feel like oh no like we're not going to get this next month we're, or we we're going to have to do all these things so that we do get it next month. like there's so much pressure Right. It's like almost inescapable. It feels like sometimes, and it, yeah, really, kind of like I, I have this idea that I haven't like shared really publicly yet because I'm still wrapping my head around it, and it feels really cynical. But I'm not convinced that like the things that you do for money are going to make you truly happy. Like just inherently, if the money is sort of like inherently a corruptive element, like you, it's almost impossible to, on a long term basis, right? Like. It, that's why I think a lot of these, like Bill Gates, like who is still one of my idols, I think, like left uh, mm-hmm. Microsoft. He probably kind of came to this conclusion that he would basically be an amazing sort of optimizer forever, but like 
is that really sort of super satisfying? And you know, if you look at like art, right? Like most artists that start making it, quote unquote, the, the thing that people say is like, oh, they sold their soul. Yeah, they sold their soul and almost always, I mean, I honestly, I feel like I struggle with this a little bit too, but if you look at a lot of really great artists, like their best work happens before they're famous, before mm-hmm. they're successful, before they're sort of affluent. I mean, I would argue I mean, J.K. Rowling's best book is, you know, best series is Harry Potter. Like she has other books that a lot of people mm-hmm. don't know about that are not, I've read two of them and they're okay. They're, they're fine. They're definitely sort of good work, but like, it's not, nothing close. Mm-hmm. Obviously the f- sort of most famous example is probably George R. R. Martin, right? Like mm-hmm. who sort of is probably never going to release like the ending of his series now since the success of Game of Thrones. But there's definitely that, that happens, right? Like the way I would say Kanye West is maybe getting there too. Like sometimes you need like the kind of unknown sort of like drive of like failure driving you to, to succeed. And when that goes away, sometimes the right thing to do maybe is to just acknowledge it, you know, and be like, I did the thing that I'm known for. Mm-hmm. Like you pray love the Harry Potter, the Microsoft I'm done. And like, I mean, and even like, sometimes I feel like that where I'm like, I want to do other stuff or at least I don't, because the problem is that yeah, I don't want to just start another company so I can kind of like get to that thing that I wanted and kind of one-up myself. Like I'm much more kind of a horizontal person where it's like, I'm much more interested in learning and just trying out new stuff. And like, you know, like learning 3D, like building a tractor in 3D, like Mm -hmm. what's the utility of understanding sort of array modifiers and blender so that I can build tractor tires or something? I don't know, but it feels good to now know it. (laughs) Yeah, and and you're doing something. And and almost like when we were talking about sort of making it i'm curious like do you almost like when you make it have to fail again to then get reconnected to your true thing because because you had that experience of like reaching the top and then kind of like what we started with i think it was like you said within seven months you fired laid off 75 percent of your company mm-hmm. so how did that yeah. feel like and did that feel like you're reconnecting to that place where you started or, or how did that feel like yeah, I mean, it definitely does. It grounds you again. And I, I do think it kind of forces you to go back to first principles. Yeah, I think it's, it's so easy to get detached from, you know, the kind of the reason that you started in the first place. When you have like a lot of people, a lot of money, a lot of sort of people following you, you start acting on on because you know you have those things instead of maybe acting like how you would if you did not even now gumroad i think we're like we're kind of getting we're still working on it but we're getting better and closer to that ideal of just making an amazing product that's just super good like it's i want to build a company and a product that's just so good that it doesn't make sense to people like like why would you make a like obviously like no it's kind of like that you know the apple right like when they, you know, work on like this, the screws inside the laptop that no one sees or whatever. Right. I think that level of care and compassion, like it doesn't necessarily even make a better product, but it, or better experience, at least for the, for the end user, but it feels good. Like it feels like the right thing to do. And I think if we can really orient ourselves towards that goal, that's something that we can control that we can sort of measurably improve on and, I think just leads to a lot less stress because it's not about 
do we grow this month or not? It's more about, do we improve the product and do we feel good about it? And that, that's a big reason why I think open sourcing everything is so important to us is because I think it will allow for that focus to become even more true and even more sort of consistent internally and externally. That's amazing. First of all, that you're open sourcing it. When you can kind of go back to that rabbit hole idea of like just improving stuff, how do you balance shipping versus improving? Like for me too, like for example, like doing this podcast, I started going down the rabbit hole of just like creating a process for like inviting guests and like having all of these fancy things. I was like, no, I just have to do it first. Right. So like, how do you balance those? Yeah. I mean, I've always been pretty, like pretty good about sort of like shipping fast and Mm -hmm. iterating. Like I've always, I've always been really, yeah. Biased towards shipping. Yeah. So I've, I've honestly never really had that problem. Like, it's funny. I was like, when, even when I started painting, I was very quick to kind of start sharing stuff on social media. And like most people I think would sort of silently develop the skill for a couple of years before they do that. But to me, it's just so important to like have a, a sort of a track record and have like some sort of public ledger almost of mm-hmm. like it's a proof of work, I guess. Like this is the stuff that I've done. This is when I started. This is how many hours I've put in. And it kind of goes in line with the open sourcing of Gumroad thing. Like, I just think it's less stressful when you're, when everything's just open in public. Like, it sucks in the beginning. It's like very scary in the early days. Uh-huh. But once you do it, it's kind of like jumping into, you know, cold water or something like that. Like, it takes a little bit for your body to adjust and then you don't even notice. Like, you just deal with it. And, you know, now I don't even think about posting the monthly numbers on, on Twitter anymore. Just something I do. But to a lot of people, they're like, I can't believe you're doing this. It's amazing. And I'm like, well, I've been doing this for you know a year and a half. Yeah. So it's like, was, that, was that scary initially? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And even when I first did it... Wait, I so I did, what was the fear? Like, what was... Well, one, I was going to reveal to everyone like how, how big or small Gumroad was. So that was a big concern. Like, startups especially, I think, play with this idea of inflating how large they are. Mm-hmm. Um, like, oh, we have 100,000 users. It's like, no, you have 100,000 emails in your database. Yep. <laughs> of which like half of them are, you know, have never done anything on your product. Mm-hmm. Uh, less so made a sale, right? And we deal with this, right? Like we have competitors that say they have like 180,000 creators. And I'm like, there are literally not 180,000 creators that are making more than a dollar a month currently. Like Patreon, I think, is the largest. They have 125,000. And I don't know if those are active or total all time. And mm-hmm. my guess probably total all time that have made money. And we have, you know, we have 40,000, I think, but we even like try to tell people we have 11,000 active creators that are making money on the platform mm-hmm. every month. Just so we don't have to play the game of like, how much do we want to inflate this number by? Right? right. Yeah. So that was a thing kind of like, you know, being honest almost creates like a, like it allows other competitors to sort of be more dishonest almost where they're like, Oh, now we're like, we can say we're 50 times as big as Gumroad. But it's like, well, we're using different metrics. We're just trying to be a little more honest about them, in my opinion. I would say the other thing is there is a, you know, there was a fear that like Gumroad creators would find out that like either how much money we're making off them, which is not much to be honest, and uh, or how how small we were. So maybe they feel like they have, you know, they should go use a different, bigger platform or something like that. So I think realizing when we did it, we realized like those things actually didn't really matter too much. And actually, I think people have more empathy for what we're doing. And also just makes me feel good 
Like it makes me feel good that we're like running the business in a way that I can open up some of this stuff and people aren't like, oh, you're like, you're using this number instead of this number. You know, like I can publish all this information and people are like, awesome. Yeah. Like no one's been like, oh, you actually are summing all your user counts. Even the people that signed up for an account in 2011 that like never created a product. Unlike a very well-known field IPO recently. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of those, uh, you know, these stories. And I also think that's like a narrative that like, you know, we started publishing our numbers, I think, in April 2018. And so, you know, a year and a half ago. And now I feel like, it, you know, like, especially recently with all, a lot of these new IPOs that maybe aren't doing as hot as expected, really, they're doing probably what they should be doing, roughly, but, but maybe even better because the market is in general doing so well, but, and interest rates are so low. but people were sort of the only data people had were like the, you know, the press releases and the tweets and like the kind of the stuff coming out of the company. And so of course, like when you have people that are like, do I want to invest in this thing? And like, can I read your S one and see the actual numbers every quarter? It turns out that that has like kind of like a reality check sort of force on the, on the company, which I think is great. I think it's a very healthy thing because in it, you know you'd hope that at some point if you want to you know if you've built a business right like let's say i spent 10 years building gumroad do i want to feel like we built a 10 million dollar business that i was able to get valued at 100 million dollars or do i want to build a 20 million dollar business that is valued at 20 million dollars like mm-hmm. i know what it, like i know like as the ceo of the company like i know everything about or i know as much as anyone would just like the we work ceo the uber ceo the the peloton ceo knows about their own companies and if there's a discrepancy if there's a dissonance like i guarantee you i know that that does not feel good like yeah. i i know that that feels shitty and that they spend a good chunk of their time hoping to equalize those two things because yeah. it feels not great yeah i think like especially seeing friends i i never went through it but like friends in sf who raised a lot of money believing that they're worth hundreds of millions on paper and, and then seeing some of them go up and down um it can be a pretty big reality check totally and it's a dangerous thing because you're you're tying your net worth to your or you're tying your self-worth hopefully not but you know some people do tie their self-worth to these numbers these net worth numbers and and you don't really have a lot of control over these things Mm -hmm. and it's also just like so abstract and so like sort of incomprehensible even right like what does a hundred million dollars mean that's so much money you know, that's just an insane, how, like how many houses, even in San Francisco, the most expensive probably city in the world to live in at this point, like a hundred million dollars, you could buy 10 houses that you could never fill with enough furniture. 10. It's just, mm-hmm. plus more cars that you could ever, you know, it's just like an, it's an insane yes. amount of money. Yeah. So, and that's all the money that, that's just the money you have. That's not the money, the interest that's going to build on. That. Yeah. So, I, you know. so I'm curious, like, did you, and this is kind of like a, two-part question because i think a lot of people go through or want what you have got which is like want a lot of fame without really mm-hmm. thinking about it and yeah. then very few people have talked about that experience of like going from fame to coming down and then kind of like building back up right mm-hmm. so what was did you go through that of that attaching the self-worth to the network or whatever or what the company was and and what was that experience like for you personally because i think a lot of creators yeah. can relate to that yeah, I mean, I think that happened to me when I left San Francisco and moved to Provo, Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that because I wanted to basically take a science fiction fantasy writing class from this author that I really like, Brandon Sanderson. And 
live in a conservative place and kind of like understand what that was because I didn't have a lot of context for it in my upbringing. And it really, yeah, it really took that, honestly. Like, I don't know if I could have had a lot of those realizations around self-worth, net worth, like my identity, fame, money, all these sorts of things, my ambition and like what I wanted out of my life and things like that. It was, it was, I think it would have been very difficult to have those realizations in San Francisco where I'm still surrounded by, you know, those sort of people that all want that, wanted what, wanted what I wanted and we all kind of aligned on it. There wasn't like a lot of opportunity for disagreement and, and things like that. And when I moved to Provo, it was kind of like, it was like, oh, all of a sudden I'm the only person <laughs> in a way that want, that I encountered on a daily basis or a weekly basis that like wanted these other things. And everyone was like, why do you want, you know, like, why do you want to build a billion dollar company? Mm-hmm. Or why did you want to? Or why did you try? That seems like a weird thing to try to do. And then just like the, yeah, like the fact that when I went into a room, you know, like I, I started painting uh, two years ago. And uh, I'd go into a room with my oil paints and there'd be a model and we'd paint, I'll paint the model. And that was kind of like what I do for three hours, like every other day or every few days or once a week or whatever. So there are all these strangers, right, that I was interacting with. And like, I could introduce myself. I'm like, I live in, this is in Provo, Utah. I'm like, just like this random brown dude. Mm-hmm. I could make up whatever story I wanted. And so I didn't have to tell people I'm the CEO and founder of a company called Gumroad that no one would have known about anyways there. And so it was kind of nice to be like, yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm just learning how to paint. I write some science fiction and fantasy and I'm learning how to paint. And, uh, I work remotely for like a software business in San Francisco is kind of how I would, if people ask, I would just stick to that first bit. But if people ask like, how can you like, you're old enough that you have a job, I assume like, what is it? Then I would kind of, mention that and then you know obviously i'm not gonna hide my story so if someone asks like why do you have sixty-five thousand twitter followers or something like that like then i could give them a little bit more context but it's allows yeah it allowed me to kind of separate myself from my identity and kind of just paint and be a painter or be a writer and really like interact as like a part of those communities and then that over time you know it took two years i think but it, over time it allowed me to when I visited SF or, you know, obviously I still had a lot of these conversations on Twitter and phone calls and, and things like that. When I'd speak at events and things, I was still like the CEO and founder of Gumroad, which is a company I still ran. It allowed me to kind of come at it with a little bit more, I think, distance, which often, like, honestly, a lot of CEOs don't want distance from their companies. And that's totally fine. If you want to be kind of like your identity in Gumroad, like I wanted those things to be kind of super overlapping. For, because I wanted to build a billion dollar company and I felt like if I did that, then like it would have all been worth it. And like, if I didn't do that, like it doesn't matter how good my other parts of my identity were, they wouldn't have mattered anyways. Um, so I don't, I don't necessarily think it's, it's, it was like the wrong move, but definitely now I think it's much healthier to feel like I, I'm a multifaceted person and Gumroad is like one of the things that I do, but it's not the thing that necessarily defines me. It's still sort of a core thing that defines me. And even that is something I might want to revisit someday. but. Yeah, it doesn't kind of like control every decision that I make anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this idea of having the multifaceted identity. It's funny, like like being in SF and then leaving, which I did and you did too. It feels so foreign because when you're there, it's just like, what do you do? What do you do? And that's all that kind of like is there. Yeah, um, yeah, on, totally. On, on this topic of like building a billion dollar company, because I think we've both had this experience in SF where it's like. 
it's either like you're building a billion dollar company or you're building a quote unquote lifestyle business, which is always yeah. like demeaning. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Cause I know you've been exploring stuff around that. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think the difficult thing is that most businesses are somewhere in the middle. And so it's really hard to kind of come up with a phrase that like defines that because it's the default. Like most people, mm-hmm. you know, that profitable business, most people would be like, that's redundant <laughs> or it should be, uh, you'd hope. But yeah, I mean, I've thought, of, I've thought a lot about it and I'm still trying to sort of wrap my head around like, you know, like a friend of mine says, like she calls them like Goldilocks businesses, kind of like these right sized kind of middle, middle sized things. I kind of call it the third way. That's like sort of their step, you know, the first way is like kind of like the unicorn. And the second way is the lifestyle business. Third way is kind of like the in-between kind of like the rework base camp, right? Like I wouldn't say they're totally lifestyle businesses. Like they help make rails, which is like this amazing thing that adds a bunch of value to the world. Probably more value than many startups, probably the majority of startups, though they don't monetize it. So they doesn't show up on like someone's cap table or something like that. But certainly if it was a startup, it would be larger in impact than like Mongo or some of these big unicorns, right? Uh, in my in my view, uh, obviously I'm biased. I, we use Rails at Gumroad and I like the base camp sort of ethos. But yeah, I think there's a, it's kind of just like appreciating like the, the tradition of building a business instead of like the kind of the new allure, like both on the lifestyle business side and on the, uh, on a, and on the unicorn side, these are kind of like new things. Mm-hmm. And because they're new, they're sexy. They kind of create these like very sort of outsized examples in different ways, right? You have like this person that made a bunch of money or this person that works like one hour a week or whatever, which are very sexy. Like people like writing about them. They show up on in newspapers and on TV and things like that um, and on Twitter and stuff. But, but ultimately, it's just really important to kind of understand that like most businesses are that normal path right down the middle. They do care about their lifestyle, but they also want to have an impact. And I think it's going to be really important over the next few years. And I think it's luckily a shift that's, that's happening already with this, especially sort of accelerated, I think, with the WeWork kind of flame out. I think people are realizing that maybe like both of these approaches, like the lifestyle business and the unicorn are like maybe kind of a bit too simplistic and, and maybe also just like more, more for the person than the community. I like the word, like when I wrote this post on medium about the, the journey of Gumroad, the, the phrase that I feel like a lot of people oriented around was community oriented business. And so I think there's something there around like picking a community that you really like and building a business for that community. And I like community as a word because it feels very unscaled, right? Like Mm -hmm. a community, like by nature kind of has like a, a cap and Mm -hmm. kind of borders in a way and sort of a, sort of a delineation between who's in and who's out and, and, and things like that. So I really like that phrase, but I, I think it's definitely like a, sort of a, a, a topic that's like rapidly developing, right? There's the whole indie hacker community. There's like, I think lifestyle business, it kind of sucks that it's like such a derogatory term. I'm not exactly sure like the sort of why it became so, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I kind of like to tell people like, you know, I believe I have a great lifestyle, but I also believe we're helping, you know, 11,000 creators a month get a better lifestyle. And so maybe we're a lifestyles business <laughs> yeah, uh, or something like that. But I'm sure, I'm sure at some point there'll be a catchy, hopefully there'll be a catchy, nice phrase that kind of sums it up. 
I also think nowadays with software, with remote work, with asynchronous communication and things, you can kind of have your cake and eat it too. Mm-hmm. You can have like a lot of the lifestyle components, but also a lot of the impact components of, of what people I think unicorns kind of stand for, that kind of impact, disruption, dent in, in the universe sort of thing. Yeah, I think I think in, 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 in sort of like the realm of impact, I love that on even Gumroad, you lead with how much you've paid out to creators. Yeah. That's, that's really awesome. Well, you know, it just keeps it like, uh, you know, honest. Like, why did we start this business? <laughs> and if, you know, if we started it so that creators could make more money, mm-hmm. that's uh, something that I think should be sort of as, as front page as possible. Yeah. And, and yeah, and then I think like, I also like the transition you've made sort of from like we see back to now buying back investors and just running the company in a sustainable way. I guess to close things out, like what's next for, for you and for Gumroad and, and where can people find you if they want to share yeah. thoughts or, or ask questions or whatever? Totally. Yeah. I mean, the best place is Twitter. Probably my Twitter handle is at SHL. You can also subscribe to my newsletter, which I have through Gumroad, which is gumroad.com forward slash Sahil. And then if you're interested in selling digital products or memberships or courses or anything like that, you can check out gumroad.com. In terms of what's next... You know, we're building out our roadmap right now. I'll probably actually include that in the email newsletter for December, which will probably go out like December 10th or so and get feedback and sort of refine it. And so I think on the Gumroad side, there's going to be like a sort of a, a thrust there on on probably education is kind of, it seems to be like the sort of core theme. Like it seems like a lot of people are creators trying to educate other creators. And so, so that's, we're sort of really thinking about like how we can sort of improve that i would say on a personal level like i'm just trying to figure out like what kind of creator i want to be like what do i want to create like i definitely want to launch a gumroad product we're launching a memberships product more like a overhaul revamp that is going to have tiers and all of these sorts of things that people really want and so maybe i'll do one of those maybe we'll have one for the company but i'm just trying to figure out like how gumroad my own creator sort of needs align mm-hmm. uh, and I want to experiment more with how we run the company and like how, yeah, like sort of the meta sort of company of Gumroad, which is like, how do we actually build Gumroad, ship Gumroad, accept sort of community contributions and feedback and, you know, how people get paid to work on Gumroad. And like, I think there's a lot there that I think we're just starting to see sort of be a thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited about that as well. Yeah. I love how kind of you're sort of, you're now more in favor. It's, it seems like of people working as independently and working on Gumroad, but also having their own thing instead of like the 80 to 100 hour week, just slogs that people want companies. Yeah, to I think ultimately like, yeah, what I'm trying to find is like a nice consistency, an internally consistent, externally consistent Gumroad, me, our employees or workers, contractors, whatever you want to call them, freelancers. All those things, and our audience too. Like I, I, I kind of want to just be incredibly consistent, and and sort of so that those things don't feel like they're at odds, and they all help each other. Like I'm working on this book. I hope that helps Gumroad. I hope that hope that helps me. I hope I hope Gumroad helps the book. And like I'm writing science fiction. I want those things to kind of interface somehow. We're working on this like TV show concept that merges a lot of these things. So I'm just kind of like almost like building my own little universe of like things mm-hmm. that kind of like hopefully like help each other out. Um, Have you seen the Walt Disney Vision Map? 
think no. about that. Oh, yes. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Like, that's a good, kind of like Kanye West kind of thing too, right? Hey, hey he had like an iteration on that. Mm-hmm. For I'll check it out again, though. It's yeah. been a while. I saw I'll share that with you. But yeah, um, thanks for doing this. Any well, last words? I don't think so. Thanks for having me on. And I, yeah, I hope to talk to you soon. Yeah. My, my favorite part actually about this conversation was how much we jumped around from like design to WeWork as one and just kind of like seeing your thinking on all of these different topics and how they re- relate. It's fun. If you're, if you're ever in Austin, let's go painting. Yeah, I will. I will be next year sometime. I hope to make it out there. So I'll let you know. Awesome. Thanks for doing this. Uh-huh. Take care. Hey, it's Sachit again. If you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did, make sure you thank our guests and let them know what you thought. There's easy links to all of their social media, Twitter, Instagram, everything else in the show notes. Secondly, make sure you head on over to creators.show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and additional bonuses. See you next week.